this week's portion is Vayegesh, and um, the title of the, the lesson today, sorry I'm going to have to look over my glasses because I don't have my bifocus. The title of the class today is going to be uh, Healing Broken Relations or Relationships, and we get this from the story of Joseph and Judah. The, the text here has um, some really interesting instructions and lessons about relationships. Uh, we will later see one of the many examples in the Torah where Judaism gets the idea of going to the grave of a patriarch, a matriarch, uh, to pray uh, in the merit of their righteousness, uh, going to pray at the grave of a Zadik. And, um, and we'll see this when Judah, before going to Egypt, goes to the grave of his father and prays. And there God tells him to not have any fear, to go do what he has to do. And so we're going to learn a beautiful lesson also about the providence of God again, once again. So we start off with this text. It said that, that Yehuda or Judah approached Joseph. Now, in this text, when we get started, where it says that he approaches Joseph, we have to remember that we're still in a situation where the brothers don't recognize Joseph. He looks like an Egyptian, right? Uh, to them, he's a tyrant. Uh, he's already played some really terrible tricks on them uh, by actually capturing Benjamin. And they are concerned because if they go back to their father and Benjamin is not with them, what is the father going to think again? This is a terrible situation. But what we're going to learn in this story is how broken relationships can be mended. There's a method to this madness, and it's a beautiful way to understand this. And so as we read along, we'll sort of take some mental notes, and uh, we'll sort of teach the Musar, the ethics behind it. But he says that uh, Judah approached Israel and said, Please, my master, your servant now uh, wants to say something that my master will do or will listen to. So please, don't get angry at your servant, for you are as important as Pharaoh himself. From the very first instance, he expressed, my master interrogated his servants, accusing, saying, you have a father or a brother. He's already sort of going into sort of the play-by-play -play as how, how things have unfolded. I'm reading you with, uh, the text from the Hamash that has the expanded commentary, so you'll under, so it's a little bit easier to understand. Nevertheless, he's, he we held nothing back from you. We said to my master, "We have an elderly father who has a baby born to him with, with in old age. His brother is dead, so he is the only child of the mother, and his father loves him." You said to your servants. Bring him to me, and I can see for my so I can see him myself. He said to my master, "The boy cannot leave his father, for he leaves his father. We are concerned that uh, he will die in route, for his mother died while traveling." You said to your servants, 
if your youngest brother doesn't come down with you, you will see uh, never see my face again. Then when he went up uh, to your servants, my father, and he went to and told him the words of my master, our father said, go back and buy us a bit of food. We said, we cannot go down like this. So he continues on explaining the play by play and how Benjamin comes to get to this, this situation. He is appealing at the highest level, concerned that, that uh, Joseph, at the time, this Pharaoh's representative, is not going to release Benjamin and is going to further continue some level of uh, persecution toward he and his brothers. Picks it up and he says, uh, verse 32, he says, Now I'm speaking here on, on particular, uh, here in particular, because I, your servant, assumed responsibility for the boy, talking about Benjamin, when we took him from my father, saying, If I don't bring him back to you, I will, uh, I will have sinned against my father forever. So now please let your servant stay as a slave to my master instead of the boy, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how could I go back to my father if, my, if the boy is not with me? I can't bear it to see the misery that my father will suffer. So what's happening here is Joseph tested this relationship right off the bat. How was Joseph going to know his brothers had changed, except that it be tested? So one of the first things that we're going to learn on restoring relationships, uh, well, the first thing is time heals everything. Right? There's nothing like good time apart that helps a whole lot. So the first thing that we have to remember in the lesson with Joseph and his brothers, their damaged relationship, he could have at any time, especially being the viceroy of Egypt, traveled to go see his father. He could have. Nothing stopping him. As a matter of fact, he had more power and ability to do that then than he could have ever had. But he chose not to do it. He waited for his brothers to come to him. In a relationship being mended, both parties have to recognize they participated at some level in the relationship being destroyed, right? With that being said, Joseph waited on his brothers to come to him or waited on Hashem to bring the opportunity for them to come together. So one of the things that we learn about mending relationships and what we've learned here is that Joseph waited for the timing. He understood something grander than, than, than most people in the world will understand. And that is later on when his brothers began to lament that they had done what they had done. He said, well, you didn't put me here. Hashem put me here. The understanding the whole concept is that in relationships, people are the servant of Hashem. Everyone's a servant of Hashem, correct? Even your worst enemy is the servant of Hashem. If we know how Satan is the servant of Hashem, you can know your next door neighbor is. And why do we say that? Because most relationships become more damaged when we have expectations of another person. When you have expectations of other people, you destroy relationships. It's so easy to do. Sure, Joseph could have probably handled the whole dream thing sequence better. But the point is, is he's in Egypt because Hashem directed him to be there. So therefore, it takes the pressure off 
of this whole sort of mending process because no one's pointing fingers and blaming. Right. 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 So what did Joseph do to get to this situation where he could find out the real metal of his brothers? He tested the relationship. He gave them what they wanted, but he also wanted to find out were they the same young men that they were when they threw him in the pit 20 some odd years ago. That's what he wanted to find out. And what he quickly found out was there was a different attitude. These men looked out for their father. They, at the same time, remember when, remember when they saw, found the cup, which, which actually was Joseph's special cup. But in Egyptian mythology, they, these guys understood that it was like a divining cup, right? And so they were scared to death because they realized they directly related the cup to Joseph being thrown in the, in the well and being sold. And they said, see, we're being punished for this. They immediately recognized it. So in, in that, with that being said, what Joseph was doing is testing to see if the relationship was worth him exposing himself to him. Right? So what happens in the next chapter? It said that during this time, Joseph sees Yehuda's great concern for his little baby brother. And Joseph can't bear it anymore. It says, Joseph couldn't bear bear the thought that all the Egyptians standing by him would see his brother's shame when he revealed himself to him. So he called out, he says, take everyone out away from me. Thus, no one stood with Joseph when he revealed himself to his brothers. He wept so loud that the Egyptians heard him crying and weeping. Soon all of Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Yosef. Is my father still alive? But his brothers were unable to answer him because they were so ashamed. When he saw that they were ashamed, Joseph said to his brothers, Please come, come closer to me. They drew near and he showed them that he was circumcised. They were so shocked, they couldn't believe that he was actually Joseph. He had to show them that he was circumcised. He said, I am your brother Joseph, Ani Yosef, whom you sold to Egypt. But now don't be upset or angry with yourself that you sold me to this place. For now we see that God sent me ahead of you to save your lives. And for two years now there has been a famine in the land, and there won't be any plowing or harvesting for another five years. God sent me ahead of you to ensure your survival in the land and to sustain your families and flocks for, the, for, uh, and for great salvation. Now, let me throw this out. Sure, Joseph had the advantage, the tactical advantage of being the viceroy of Egypt, and he saves his, his family's life. And, you know, obviously, how can the relationship not be mended? Because he has the upper hand in the whole thing. He actually had the food. He had, he had it all together. One would say, well, how can you even apply this in your own personal life? I mean, I don't, I'm not sure how this really applies. The way this, this works is that um, there is a level 
of humility that Joseph exhibited before his brothers after he told them who he was. He came off of this high level of being a Pharaoh to now his brother. And because he did not sit there and, and tell them that they, that they owed him an apology, that they should re- pray reparations for the damages that they've done. I mean, he could have requested all kinds of things. But never one time does Joseph ask them to apologize. Nor do they apologize. Did you notice that? Read the text. They don't apologize. So what do we learn in mending a relationship? Forget about having the expectation that someone should apologize to you. You should be willing to let bygones be bygones and let it roll. Just let it go. The reason why relationships often are not able to mend is because both sides have expectations. Well, as soon as they do this, I'll do that. But nothing ever gets done because the person doesn't do that or the other person doesn't do this, right? So it's, they become like it's like a loggerhead. Everything sort of gets built up, nothing moves. So that's why it's important to always be the first to show humility in the relationship. Now, what happens if you approach a relationship and you realize the person has not changed? They're, they're still the same person they were back when. Don't go that system. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your time. Some relationships can't be healed. You understand it takes two to tango. So, so he, so he says now in verse eight. Now uh, we can see that it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me an advisor to Pharaoh, a master over all of his household, and the ruler over the entire land of Egypt. Hurry up and go to the land. To my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph said. God has made me master over all of the Egyptians. Come down here to me. Do not delay. You can dwell in the land of Goshen, you and your children and your grandchildren, your flocks and your cattle. So in verse 12, it says, look, you can see for yourself. And my brother Benjamin can see for himself that I am really Joseph because I am circumcised. My mouth is speaking to you in Hebrew. He then had been began speaking to them in Hebrew. Up to this point, he feigned like he didn't know what they were talking about so he could hear what they were saying. You shall tell my father about all the honor which I have received in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and you should quickly bring my father down here. Does Joseph one time ever once say, See, I told you so. Could you shut that door for me, please? I told you so. I had a dream. Remember the dream? He could have easily reminded them. You remember that? So the next thing is in mending a relationships, don't ever go to that place. I told you so. Just don't do it. It just saves a lot of time. Don't do it. I told you this, this or that. So. Okay. Um. Let's go let's skip over a little bit. Um, he gives them obviously provisions for the journey back to Canaan. I'm trying to get to where they meet Israel. Verse 27, it says, When they told him, Israel, of Joseph's words, which he had I told them, 
including the content of the last discussion which Yosef had had with Yaakov, he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, and the spirit of their father Yaakov was revived. It says that this whole entire time Yaakov was in a terrible, terrible way from the time of, of Joseph's disappearance. Israel said, I have a lot to look forward to now because my son Yosef is still alive. Let me go and see him before I die. Israel traveled with all of his possessions, and this is the text that I want to point out. He arrived at Beersheba. He slaughtered sacrifices to God of his father, Yitzhak. In a nighttime vision, God spoke to Israel and said, Yaakov, Yaakov, here I am, Yaakov said. He said, God says, I am God, the God of your fathers. Do not be afraid of going down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. Setting aside the whole issue with the relationship being mended, I want to examine a couple of other things that comes from this text. First of all, the appropriateness of praying to Hashem in the merit of Azadik. That's one of the texts. There are many other texts that, that, that speak this way. But it is, it is, there's a song, what goes, what goes up must come down. Remember that? Spinning wheels, or, yeah, I'm telling my age anyway. Um, Skip actually told me about it. I don't remember personally. He loaned me the he loaned me the he loaned me the record, the 45, the 45. Yeah, 78. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, blood, sweat, and tears. It is. Yeah, yeah, which is very appropriate. Um, the 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 idea is what is going to ever go up has to first come from the bottom, right? Uh, this is a very important principle that is, that is found all through sacred literature. Lakuti Maharan, Rabbi Nachman, you, you just can go through so many texts that speaks of everything having its beginning source at the lowest level. Before, each, before Israel could become a great nation, it had to go into exile. This was a different kind of exile, though. This wasn't an exile like before. Before the uh, later on, the exiles were because of Israel's disobedience, the nation. Here, this was a forced by the forced hand of Hashem. They're taken to the land for this one purpose, and that is to become a great nation. They're taken to the land to become a great nation. You mean to tell me that you put them in the darkest place to make them the greatest? What does that mean? How does that translate down? It's not a, a, it's, this is a, a, not, it's not a mistake at all. It's very purposeful that it was decided to use the Haftorah portion that talks of the two sticks, the Ezekiel's prophecy, where God says, take two sticks and describe on one Joseph and the other one Judah, I mean Ephraim and Judah. And then he says, put them together and you, you prophesy. That text itself not only repeat sort of the same kind of thing that happens in Egypt with Joseph and Judah, but is also talking about the time in the future in which from the exiled nations will become a great union between Joseph and Judah. Joseph or Ephraim representing the lost tribes and the, the Ger and the Noahide that is in the nations 
that will be gathered up. Their sparks will be gathered up and they'll be united once again with Judah. I think that we're living in this age right now as we see it. Many people who have taken upon the yoke of Torah for years up to this point would approach uh, Orthodox Judaism and Orthodox Judaism would say, you're gear or goy, actually. Wouldn't even bother saying a gear or a noahide. You're, you're goy. Go be a good goy and disappear. Right? Just go be a good goy. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to be a Jew. You shouldn't do Jewish things. You shouldn't study Torah. You shouldn't do anything at all. Just go be a good goy. And in some aspects, the only reason why Joseph, I mean, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, um, uh, the brothers came to Joseph, is that they had no other choice. They had no other choice but to go to him. And so I don't know what's going to happen in the end of age that will cause the, the, uh, the lost tribes, um, those who are in exile. How, what, will, what impetus will there be to draw this to the two together and to rectify? But very clearly what we learn from the text is they do not recognize Joseph. And I think that we are just finally getting to the place. I think that this is prophetically where we're at right now, is we see the brothers there. We are starting to have communion, communion, like community with them. And for the longest time, they couldn't see the B'nai Noach possibly, even remotely being lost tribe members, possibly. People with Jewish DNA who've been away from their Judaism for 10 generations, 15 generations. They're finding these, these, this information out. And so how do we now look at that? I think that what's happening is there's this revealing that's taking place. And I think the revealing that's taking place is when, when Judah, normative Judaism, comes in contact with people from the nations who have taken on the yoke of Torah, and they truly see the circumcised nature of their heart, and their soul, their genuine love for Hashem. I had a conversation with uh, a rabbi the other day who sits on a base den in Jerusalem. Very sweet man. Hopefully we'll hear from him soon. But I was explaining to him the complexity of the, this issue with the people of the nations coming. It's very complex. It's supposed to be that way. It, light doesn't shine unless it's pitch dark. Right. Exile. I mean, redemption cannot be sweet if exile has not been difficult. Right. How how much more beautiful is the reunification and the healing of neshamas and souls when brothers will look at each other and recognize each other for the first time, even though the people of nations look like Goy. You follow me through. Deep down inside, they have a Jewish neshama, and that's their desires to reconnect to their family, reconnect to their, to their brethren. That is going to take place in the future. That is what Mashiach will eventually do. But we are already living the rippling effect of redemption right now as we speak. Every one of us, I mean, when I came in here uh, the other night and we had our Hanukkah celebration and we were all eating and drinking and having a good time, I'm looking around this room and I realize the beauty of this community. What a beautiful community. You guys love Hashem. I was explaining to this rabbi 
his perplexing attitude toward the people, the nations. And he says, I just don't understand if they're not going to convert. Why do they care? You see, I mean, they're not going to convert to Judaism. Well, what's the point? Why do they even care? Why do they waste their time studying? And He didn't understand. And I said, look, you have to understand this. The people that are in this community and the people that watch us on the Internet are not doing it because they want to wear a kippot or wear tzitzit. They're not doing it because they want people to think they're Jewish. They love Hashem and they love His Torah. And if they got not a single reward out of it, they would still want to study Torah and connect to Hashem through the study of Torah and through mitzvah. He's like, okay, but I just don't... Why don't they convert? And I said, because it's not for, theirs to, for them to do. And he goes, I know that. I know that. That's obviously so. But I just, it, it puzzles me as to why they don't want to waste their time. Because it seems to him like, why do all that if you don't have to? It's not a waste of time. It's not a waste of time because, what, as I said, and you're right. I said, look, I said, this is what is, this is what's, this is, this is the sickness of our, of our world that we live in. It's because in this world, we don't have Torah. We don't have Torah in the world. And what is the purpose of, of Torah but to bring light to the world? That's why this whole, the whole idea of Hanukkah and this just goes so beautiful together because we, we think that light is, darkness is, the, is, is an, uh, uh, what do you call it, an object or entity in and of itself. And it's not. Darkness is the absence of what? That's it. And before the temple was destroyed, in a spiritual sense, it was the light to the world. It was the light to the world. And as horrible and disconnected and troubling that 2,000 years of exile for the Jewish people has really been, we have to realize that now there has been a master plan. And as much as we lament the Romans destroying the, the temple, as much as we lament the, the, the battle of the Greeks with the, the Maccabean era, we look back and we realize that Hashem, Hashem's light to the world was diminished from its source in the holy city. But what happened is the many billions of sparks went out through the nations. Went out through the nations. Some assimilated. Some became goy, people of the nations. And now at the end of the age, and I love Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Sutton, I think says this. You can help me if, I, if it's, he's not the one. He said that he said the ingathering of the sparks in the nations, you guys, is... Hashem's thermonuclear weapon against darkness. Right? You get it. So he brings these souls down in the, in the end of days. You're born 30, 40, 50 years ago, 60, whatever, 20. What you laughing at? No. That's, that spark was put there and it was hidden. It's been hidden in generations of dysfunction, generations of 
alcoholism, drug abuse, sex abuse, you just name it. It's been hidden, a little spark. Then one day, you came across the sacred writings of Torah. And that spark ignited. And darkness is not knowing what to do. Darkness cannot resist the light, even the smallest light. One of the things that we learned in military is a smoking cigarette can be seen a long ways, like miles away, especially with now with modern technology of, of uh, what do you call it, flare units and lights. It's amazing. They can see for miles. A, a cigarette, just a cigarette butt, just one little spark. That's amazing to me. I remember being in the cave as a kid down in Carlsbad Caverns. And back then they would take you out back in the deep and then they'd turn off all the lights. And the darkness was so heavy, it was like you felt like you were breathing it. It was like the strangest thing. And back then the guy took a match and lit the match. And it's like the whole cave lights up. It is just amazing, amazing thing. So why this text? Why Yaakov? Why Egypt? Because Egypt exile for Joseph meant the salvation of his people. You understand? The exile of the Jewish people in the last 2,000 years is going to be the salvation of the world. You see? The world will be redeemed because Joseph has been in exile. You're following? Ephraim has been in exile. The ten northern tribes have been in exile. And he... For all intents and purposes, most people think that they are just part of the world. They're Egyptians, just like them. But Ezekiel's prophecy, and if you'll remember this, the Valley of Dry Bones. Remember this? God says to prophesy to him, and he says, what's the point? I don't get it. They're dried up bones. There's no way. He stands up and prophesies, and it says the bones, as he prophesied, began to develop sinew and muscle and tissue, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And finally they stood up erect. For all intents and purposes, darkness thought that since the temple is destroyed, there will be no more light. And if I can just continue to cause the, the exiled of Joseph to become an Egyptian, if I can cause them to become like the nations, then light will forever be vanquished. There will ne- light will never be able to come back. And Hashem sends down your little neshama, your spark. And now, here at Hanukkah, It's not just the Orthodox Jews lighting a menorah. It's now people all over the world that are even not Jewish, are not celebrating other pagan holidays. They're celebrating the holiday of the Jews. It's incredible. And it's happening all over the world today. You and I are witnessing this very text right here. Now, to my Jewish brethren, I like to say this. To my Jewish brothers who will listen to this text, or this lesson, I'm asking you to be the real Israel. I want you to go back, metaphorically, to the graves of your fathers. I want you to pray to Hashem and tell them that you've got to go into the nations. You've got to reach out to the nations. You've got to go to the nations because you realize that redemption is going to come when you have extended yourself in a land that is not your land. 
And when you do extend yourself, my friend, you will hear the voice of Hashem say, I am the God of your fathers. You can go. You can go. You'll be safe there. I've prepared a place for you and I've prepared redemption for you. That, my friend, is this text. We're living it right now. And though we feel like we are still dressed up like an Egyptian, (laughs) we're wearing the makeup, heads are shaved, we're drinking the Egyptian beer. Guys, it's not long. It's not long. When, When we find out that we are the topic of conversation amongst many people in the rabbinical community, they realize that something big is happening. Rabbi Katz reminds me every day of somebody new within the rabbinical community that is listening to this idea of the people of the nations coming to Torah and it's changing their world. In closing, I'll say this. Rabbi Skobach said to me a couple of days ago, he sent me a text on Facebook and he uh, said that he's been inundated with people who have left Christianity and are looking at where to anchor themselves. And he says, I can't talk to all of them. He says, any way that you could take time to let me refer some of these people to you. Something's incredible going on in the world. And so, in closing, I would like to say this, and especially for the audience that's going to be listening to this or watching this later. If you feel that you have a Jewish neshama, or you have an affinity to things that are Jewish or to the Torah. Most people have infinity to things that are Jewish before they know Torah, because they just don't know Torah. If you feel infinity to, to things of Judaism, Israel, you are a part of the future redemption. And I'm asking you to, to break away from your idolatry, grab a hold of the tzitzit of a Jew, and say, take me to Zion and let me see your God. Amen? Amen. That closes the class.